This is Speak to Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. I boarded the king's ship, now on the beak, now in the waist, the deck in every cabin I flamed amazement. Sometime I'd divide and burn in many places. On the topmast, the yards, the bowsprit wood I flamed distinctly, then meet and join. Jove's lightnings, the precursors of the dreadful thunderclaps, more momentary and sight outrunning were not. The fire and cracks of sulphurous roaring, the most mighty Neptune seemed to besiege and make his bold waves tremble, yea, his dread trident shake. Not a soul but felt a fever of the mad and played some tricks of desperation. All the mariners plunged in the foaming brine and quit the vessel, then all afire with me. The king's son, Ferdinand, with hair upstaring, then like reeds, not hair, was the first man that leapt, cried, Hell is empty and all the devils are here! Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Ariel from The Tempest, read by our guest this week. She is Yirinji, Mariam, and Dutch. She's an award-winning actor, director, and dramaturg, and has been artistic director of Ilbidgeri Theatre Company since 2008. A WA Academy of Performing Arts graduate, her outstanding performances have been acknowledged with a Green Room Award and a Sydney Theatre Critics Circle Award. She's worked as a presenter for the ABC's Message Stick program and appeared in major Australian productions such as the feature film Radiance and the stage production of The Sapphires. Her directing credits include Stolen, Jack Charles vs. The Crown, Foley, Which Way Home and Heart as a Wasteland. She currently sits on the board of Force Majeure and on the Acme Indigenous Advisory Group. She's a member of the Order of Australia and has also received a Touring Legend Drover Award an Australia Council of the Arts Award for Theatre and an Honorary Doctorate from Edith Cowan University. It is my great pleasure to welcome Rachel Mazza. Rachel, welcome to Speak the Speech. <laughs> Thanks for having <laughs> us. What, what, a, what a fantastic opportunity to talk Shakespeare. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you know, Rachel, I love the way you attack that speech, just the, the glee of, Look, of Ariel. That's great. Well, and to be honest, I was literally imagining because I was in the production all those years I ago. Know, yeah. Um yeah, I, I was I, I probably did her great in in injustice, but um yeah, uh, Paula Arundel who yes. played played Ariel all those years ago. Um and she was such an incredible ball of energy. She literally <laughs> what didn't hit the ground kind of thing. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Now in that production you played Miranda, you played uh, Prospero's daughter and mm. John Bell played your dad and um, and who else was in that? Of course, and Tom Long. Tom Long, Tom Long played, played opposite, and played that's where Ferdinand. it all started. <laughs> that's where my son was conceived. There you go. And your son, <laughs> your son named? Uh, my son named Ariel. That's there you right. go. <laughs> 
Yes, I blame John Bell for that. <laughs> now, how's he gone uh, going through life uh, with the with the name of an airy spirit from the Tempest? How, how's he like that? Well, it's probably not surprising. Well, I guess with both parents as actors, mm-hmm. um, he's Tom. He's he's dumb dad since passed, but he's yeah. there's no doubt the world that he grew in, the name that he's been given. He was mm-hmm. doomed to a career <laughs> in the performing arts. So yeah, he's just graduated from NIDA and he's. Uh, making his way into the world just this year. Yeah, how extraordinary. And, of course, um, carrying on the family tradition on your side as well with your father, Bob Mazza. And he, Mm. of course, such an extraordinary man himself, a legend, uh, an actor, an activist. How do you... Was it just inevitable for you that you're going to end up in this um, profession as well or was there pressure on you to do it? I mean, how did it work? I mean, yes to the inevitability, but God mm. damn, I resisted. Did <laughs> I, tried, you? I really tried to think of something. Really? I, I was like, I'm not just going to, I'm not going to do that just because, you know, my dad's done it. I'm going to find my own thing. So for mm. quite a few years, <laughs> I, um, I, I deliberated it and tried this and that. I did a little bit of teaching. I played mm-hmm. bass guitar in some bands. Wow. Like, yeah. I really was not very, I was very unsuccessful in, in, I studied anatomy and physics and oh, anyway, wow. okay. totally fell back into, eventually went, ah, oh, you know what, maybe I will do mm. acting. <laughs> but I kind of, I kept my options open. I was looking at uh, singing and dance and acting. Yeah. And yeah. Anyway, yeah. It, it, it was, it was inevitable that I would eventually have to admit that, that this was my, the world I was familiar with. And mm. Mm. it wasn't the work itself, like I, the, the power of the performing arts yeah. as a voice, you know, as a first people's person of this country, mm. uh, theatre has been a really powerful tool mm-hmm. by which mm-hmm. uh, we get to have voice yes, um, and, yeah. and for our, our stories and narratives to, to create, to be in charge of those, of those narratives and stories. So it always was something I was really super excited about, but literally mm. just when I was starting out it was like, you know, that whole, oh, you're Bob Mazza's daughter. And I was ah, like, yeah, I'm yeah. not, I'm a me, <laughs> yes, I'm myself. Right. Yep. So, yeah, I was just, it was just my own little petty ego resisting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder how Ariel will go then. Oh, yeah, you're just uh, uh, Rachel Mazza and Tom Longson. No, I th- I'm sure he'll find his own way through as well. And, of course, Bob started the first, uh, first mm. Nations uh, Theatre Company in Australia and now you're carrying on that tradition, having run Ilbidgery mm. for the last 14 years. Really, you're it's so closely associated with Ilbidgery. Ilbidgery is Rachel Mazza. Rachel Mazza is Ilbidgery. Oh, heaven um, forbid, I hope not. <laughs> at, um, <laughs> you know, it's been, I think you started directing there almost 20 years ago, I think. So what do you think will be the the future, the next step for Rachel Mazza? Will, will you be with this company till your, your dying day or do you think there'll be a new chapter? There is definitely going to be a new chapter, folks. You're, you're hearing it from me. Wow. No, no. That's. I really, really believe of how important it is for artistic leadership to move on, okay. and and for organisations to to be able to have fresh a fresh viewpoint, a young voice. You know, like I really, I'm a bit disappointed in myself actually that I, I have stuck at, uh, held the chair for so long because it's like. Come on. I really did only ever intend. I, I, my theory at the time was the seven-year cycle. I thought that's right. long enough and now get out. So I've now taken up two cycles. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I'm really keen to 
Um, look, to be honest, the reason I've I stuck it out for so long was just wanting the, to get the company to a really solid mm. place mm. in in its positioning and its funding mm-hmm. and security as an organisation, yes. and really consolidating the the internals processes and procedures. Um, and I feel like we finally got there. Mm-hmm. You know, this year mm-hmm. is our first year as an NPAP, a National Arts Performing Framework member. Anyway, whatever that stands for. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is yeah. extraordinary. And gives you great stability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To be one of those uh, new eight companies to join the, mm-hmm. the um, what was known as the majors. The majors, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so the company is really... In a good position at a, at the right time in this country, I think you know a lot of the success of the company is actually a, a, being in the right place at the right time, right. being at a time where Australia is maturing and is yes. wanting to engage in uh, well two aspects. I think we're ready to engage with this with the truth of our history and yeah. who we are as a nation and 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 embrace this extraordinary you know rich longest continuous living culture in the planet like it's quite phenomenal when we really kind of acknowledge what's under our feet Mm -hmm. and the stories that Mm -hmm. we all have a privilege to be a part of so finally here we are australia is really stepping up and wanting to engage another really important distinction that i think the sector is is finally understanding is is the concept of Mm self-determination so Mm self-determination in the performing arts is essentially blackfellas being in control and in having authority over their stories. Mm. And I think that's been quite a distinctive shift that we're seeing over this last decade in particular. And and it's really healthy. It's really, yep. you know, it, we should have, it's it's just what should happen. Those yeah. whose story it is should have authority over their story. No question, no question. And, of course, one of the big things that you've been doing at Ilbidgery uh, is bringing up and and providing pathways and opening mm. the door for young First Nations artists to step up, to help to tell those stories and to be the next generation of leaders. And I think that's what's so important. Mm, well, particularly because often we're not the ones telling our stories. Yep. So that, And there just hasn't been... The, the opportunities for our mobs to kind of step into those spaces, like let's mm. be frank, because someone else has been t- thinking that that we're not good enough to do our, to tell our own stories. Yeah, so yeah. We're, there's a bit of catching up that needs to be done and hence a, a real kind of priority for Ilbidgery is what opportunities are we creating for this next generation through, yeah. you know, multiple programs all, or in all aspects. So mm-hmm. right from on stage to backstage um, as well as administration. Ilbidgery uh, is, of course, the longest-running First Nations theatre company in Australia. I think uh, it was founded in 1990, so it's over 30 years old now and now others have um, also popped up. But Ilbidgery has had huge success touring not just around Australia but internationally as well. And I know that you personally took Jack Charles versus The Crown to New York. You yourself have been to, to London with Beautiful One Day what are those experiences like when you take those stories and present them to an overseas audience who doesn't have the same connection? Yeah, and look, to be honest, at the time I really had to 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 question, you know, why? Because it's a lot of resources. It's yes, a lot it is. Of, yeah. It's a very yeah. expensive exercise. Why? You know, the conversation that as a as a First Nations company, the conversations that I know we want to be having is with our own country. There's a whole mm-hmm. lot of work that needs to happen here so then it like i said it was like so why take it overseas but to take it to countries 
because there is a whole world of countries uh, that have a shared experience of colonisation. Yes. So actually, and something that I appreciated when I think back with my dad, mm. is he was a part of those international delegations. He did. He, and he I was went. reminded, yes. oh, this yes. international dialogue has been going on forever. So mm. that got me really excited. So mm. I've been, we've been able to take Jack Charles versus the Crown to Canada where we got mm. to hang out with the mob there, mm. um, similarly mm. in New Zealand, similarly in um, – and then, of course, got, taking it back to England itself and, and um, was, yeah. oh, going back to the, the mother effing comp- company as a country, as mm. uh, uh, Uncle Jack Charles would say. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it actually was incredibly poignant. To mm. be able to go back to the source of the problem. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. And um, of course, such a big blow losing uh, Uncle Jack very recently. It was just a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's mm. uh, what have you been doing to um, to celebrate his memory over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, even that whole celebrating the person, but there's definitely the mourning that still. That we're still very much in the of thick course, of. Yeah, I'm of kind of not. Don't know if I'm quite ready to celebrate yet. Mm. Yeah, because I'm definitely reminded of he wasn't ready. He mm. had this longest list of of um things that he was still wanting to do. Yeah, he still yeah. was gonna. He's got another book to write. Mm. He's uh one of the most in demand voices and actors in this country. It's mm. phenomenal. Mm. Um, he was incredibly ambitious. Like his deepest, deepest passion was um actually the work that he wanted to do with. In and with community, particularly around fellas and well, and women who have experienced similar experiences to him, right. incarcerated and institutionalized, and basically creating pathways and hope to mm. to fellas who have yeah who are walking that same path. It's yeah. there's a whole lot of regret and sadness for me around all that all the stuff he didn't get to do. But on the other side was he's a seventy year old man, not mm. dissimilar to our other. Um, incredible uncle that died this in this month, um, Uncle Archie. Mm. You know, two extraordinary, legendary men, and in terms of the contribution to their community, to this country, to yeah. all our communities. Yes. But man, are they a lesson to all of us to live mm. life to the fullest? And Jack would always joke, Uncle Jack, around, um, you guys retire. Are you kidding? I've got too much to do. Why would <laughs> yeah. I want to retire? Yeah. So, yeah, he, there's no doubt he was, he was doing what he was doing to the last breath. Yes, of course he was. Of course he was. A life well lived. Mm. So, Rachel, going back to The Tempest. Your take, your take on Ariel, I, I don't know, is it Ariel, Ariel, Ariel? I've heard all, all different pronunciations, but I think you say Ariel, so we'll go with that. Your take uh, on Ariel is actually really magic because just because of the glee and the joy that uh, that she has in creating this monstrous tempest and making everyone freak out and jump overboard. When it comes down to it, though, the tempest is a story about a guy who who came to an island that didn't belong to him and there were already people there on the island and he said you know what this this island's mine now and uh, now you're going to work for me so so it's a, it's a tricky relationship that Ariel has with Prospero in this play in that uh, you know she's an all-powerful spirit she or he or they or whoever um, plays the role but at the same time is indigenous to that uh, to that land and Prospero is not and yet has to work for Prospero so how do you 
you unpack that as a as an actor on stage? Well, you kind of get to the heart of one of the challenges for me around Shakespeare. So the only time, you know, going to acting school, uh, getting the classical training, it was like mm-hmm. the be-all and end-all is Shakespeare. It was right. like, ah, oh, to do Shakespeare is is a is a sign of is your of success, but also mm-hmm. a sign a sign of your your accomplishment. Mm-hmm. So then to do the Tempest, not not too long out out of acting school. I, I suddenly was confronted with actually the politics of the work. Yes. And hence I really struggled. I struggled with the role of the women and I struggled with the role of particularly those colonising themes that are yes. embedded in the work and not questioned. Right. You don't question the hierarchy mm-hmm. and it's a kind of understood embedded way of the world that is right. embedded in all the work. So I, I really struggled. I yeah. really, and it's kind of it's driven me crazy over the years that Caliban is often cast as an indigenous character as mm-hmm. well, and mm-hmm. you know, so it's that kind of attempt by a contemporary Australia to kind of grapple with how do we kind of acknowledge these themes that are embedded in there, but yeah. you're imprisoned by the by the constraints of the the values of the work itself. It's, yes. It seems to me mm-hmm. so, and I understand, you know, like. Even just recently, Jimmy Barney has done an adaption of Othello, which Othello, I yeah. goddamn mm-hmm. didn't get to see last week because of mm-hmm. COVID. Uh, and Malthouse did that production all those years ago of King Lear, King Lear with yeah. Tommy Lewis, uh, mm-hmm. bless, who's no longer with us. And, you know, how, how we grapple with and draw on and utilise these phenomenal works. Because one mm-hmm. thing I will say, actually, as much as I struggled with the works themselves in terms of these broader themes. And I guess what's important to me, it was just mm. like, yeah, what's important to me is not not coming through in these texts. Mm-hmm. But I do love the art, I guess, or the craft of having to get your mouth around Shakespeare like you yeah, just, yeah. I just yeah. love it. I yeah. love the language I and I often mm. said it. In fact, my first taste of Shakespeare was in high school. I, w- I went to Sydney Girls High and my English yep. teacher, Miss Embry, cast me as Othello. Wow. And okay. Yeah. Well, it was an all-girls school. Yeah. Well, and then the that Christmas, she said, "Okay, we're going to do more Shakespeare next year. So here, re- read these ones." So I read Hamlet and Macbeth, mm. and I just remember just diving into this. Hamlet was the one that I got kind of really lost in, as in like, and it was just this feeling of. If you could eat words, then you, yes. you could survive mm-hmm. on just reading Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I love who that. Wouldn't eat, who would need food? Because it's I love so that. satisfying. Yeah. It's so you just could never get bored. There's so much in let depth and layers mm-hmm. in, in the text. So so as a kind of um yeah, as an art form or, or yeah, well, anyway, just the 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 um the joy of language. I just was like, oh, yeah. you know, it's, and everyone can relate to it, you know, in terms of you know when you've come across a great poem or something, you know, like it's mm, it's that mm. same idea. It's language is so beautifully. Oh no, and and, and in playwriting, where, where a playwright, I remember doing a workshop, and a writer was uh, one of the facilitators was talking about, you know, if. What you want is your language to be doing more than one thing at any one time. Yeah, wow. So, yeah. so, yeah. so it's so so you're constantly going, oh, oh, it means that as well, and blah, 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 you know, like all the mm, subtext mm. and yeah, um, I mean that's really and, 
Shakespeare's so good at that, isn't he? And mm. um, uh, I mean, if we look at this speech, the images in it, the the images that he paints in it, you you can see so clearly. It, it's you know, you don't need to make a movie. You don't need to make a, the movie of it. You know, oh, the, the, the images are right Ver, there in the Ferdinand's words. Ferdinand's hair up staring. Up so that staring. hair is staring at the sky. <laughs> isn't, isn't that great? How <laughs> fantastic. Who would think of that? Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And they're like reeds and then like, you know, Ariel's like lightning and then like churning up Neptune's ocean and making it shake and then the, the madness, not a soul but felt a fever of the mad. All of them were going oh. mad. Yeah. It, just yeah. extraordinary. But there a lot of fire imagery in here as well. And Ariel is air, but also fire and, oh. and is able to create destruction. And don't you get like you absolutely viscerally can see it. Like you can almost feel the heat. Mm. It's so full of those if those images of fire and even the kind of um use of um the consonants, like it's very kind of it's punchy, it's sharp. Yes. It's, yeah. You can feel the, the chaos, the storm. The yes, the crackle of it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, That's wonderful. Yeah. My guest today is Rachel Mazza. This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Rachel, you were saying to me before that you weren't much of a reader back in the day when you were a kid. Um, you didn't get into reading so much. But then something shifted when you were cast as Othello and you, and you went back over the Christmas break and read, read Hamlet and something changed in you. Do you think it was Shakespeare that made you turn on to reading and, and books? The love of language yes. um, was definitely awakened in that over that Christmas holidays. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. yeah, that reading Hamlet particularly more than, more than any uh, no i can't even actually think of anything else that i has done that in the same way and mm -hmm. when i read like most of the reading i'm doing is actually probably plays and theater mm -hmm. oh that's not true but anyway it's th it's reading plays where I, where um you know cuz you'll get all all different styles of theater yeah. but yeah where when a writer has that gift I can mm. instantly get that same visceral kind of, ooh, oh, it's, it's like really a, it's just very mm. sensual and yes. and viscerally engaging and you know, imagination starts going wild. and Yeah, yeah. 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 Which actually makes you a really good dramaturg as well. Now, I know you're an actor and a director originally, but also a lot of the work that you've been doing is dramaturgy and, and, mm. and, and mm. shepherding new work and new scripts up into production. What is that process like? It's such an underrated uh, skill, actually, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people don't realise that that they that is actually what they've been doing. Particularly right. this space of that I've been working in, and I know, and hence my community, my industry, we're always working on new work. So we're mm -hmm. in this space of creating the new, and because you know, Elbridge's thirty. Uh, since Nindathana, which was the first Aboriginal theatre founded in 71, kind of mm -hmm. technically, it's a 50-year-old industry, which is not that old. Right, um, right. You know, I was mm. alive. <laughs> no, but maybe I am old. Anyway, <laughs> everybody. <laughs> what I'm loving is this This next generation of writers is really owning and and boldly going where no black playwright has gone before, you know, in terms of form and style and genre. Right. And there's mm. a whole level of uh, really sophisticated discourse that's now happening around drawing on 
and kind of knowing the rules and then smashing them, if you know what yeah. I mean, yeah, in yeah. terms of the Western art form. So it's mm-hmm. like what is this form, this tool, this instrument, how does it sound if I start to play my scale over it yes. or, you know, like mm-hmm. bringing in a First Nations kind of sensibility and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so what historically might have felt like a collision of ideas mm. is not dissimilar to a, to Uncle Archie picking up the guitar. Absolutely, he is the voice of urban contemporary black voice. Right. But he is absolutely, unquestionably a person of this country. He, mm-hmm. who, who he speaks comes through him, through his music culturally. This is expression of his culture. Mm-hmm. It's a tool. And, it's, and what we're seeing now is a whole generation of black followers really owning that tool and making it their own. Yeah, right, yeah. Mm. It links to language as well. And, and this is something that's become more and more important to me over the mm. last decade or so since we've worked with um, uh, Yuri Yarkin Theatre Company over in Western Australia and their language reclamation project um, uh, for Noongar language and the mm, way that they Hecate. linked that with, with yeah with Macbeth through the Hecate project was really a community building project which then became a theatre show and a whole bunch of um, language reclamation uh, resources are going to come out of that project as well which is extraordinary but really language um, and retaining and building and preserving the language has to be at the heart of this as well, doesn't it? Mm, absolutely. One of the massive movements that's happening in black theatre now is taking power mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that and that is bringing language to into the work um, yeah. and language yeah. as a – and then a lot of that is nah, no surtitles, no subtitles. Yeah, You're that's just right. Just going to experience yeah. the language, mm-hmm. not dissimilar to going to see an Italian opera. Sure, um, sure. Yeah, it's yes. like yeah. this is – and then the extraordinary journey and process that the community and, and that artist and their community mm. will go through in that mm. process of, of the reclamation and the healing that happens with the reclamation of language. Yeah, yeah that's so crucial, isn't it? And mm. I just found it really interesting that Kylie Bracknell and Kyle Morrison um, at at Iriac and decided to use the the vessel of Shakespeare to to work on this. And where do you think Shakespeare sits alongside First, First Nations theatre from your point of view? Well, as I started off saying earlier on, I'm continuing to kind of grapple with that yes. tension. To me mm-hmm. there is a, a, an inherent conflict yep. of these kind of classic, iconic Western yes. works that's, that in my mind still sit and I've continued to grapple with, still sit within a, a colonial, colonial uh, Western construct. Framework, yep. Framework mm-hmm. and, and to kind of deconstruct that or decolonise those works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I struggle with. I, yes. I I find it really so. Yet, when a work like Jimmy Barney's Othello or or Yuri Arkin's um, Hecate, um, it's reclaiming the language mm-hmm. of the work. So mm-hmm. it's springboarding off the story, yeah. and then and then reclaiming that language. Something. I mean, the way I, I love to look at Shakespeare is that as as the world's playwright, and and part of the problem has been that. We keep getting approaches from people who want to keep him as the kind of battering ram of the Western canon or, or whatever. 
But I think we all, as artists, whatever our background is, need to keep thinking of Shakespeare as for everyone and that he belongs to everyone. And as soon as we can actually claim him for our own as individual artists, no matter what our background is, then perhaps we start to do the work of unpicking that kind of colonial battering ram that Shakespeare has been a part of. Yeah. I mean, it's also, whether you like it or not, because it belongs, it is so kind of like this held up on a pedestal, you know, a sign of civilization, of education, of sophistication, right. of mm. Western culture, sim- yeah. similar to ballet, similar to opera, Shakespeare's mm. up there. Yeah, so right. hence that, that, that inherent tension and, and a kind of want to rebel <laughs> yeah. or, or to resist mm. uh, from the First Nations context where yeah. these belong to the, to the thing that is the problem. So yeah, hence yeah. this this kind of ongoing tension, and mm-hmm. and we've just given examples though of a kind of a re-empowerment and a reclaiming of those mm. of those mm. um, great classics because at the heart of it, as we also have discussed, you know, there's no question of the their extraordinary universality and and the craft. Like I said, I, sorry, I can't think of the right word, but anyway, yeah, just that of the language, the, yeah. the language itself is just mind-boggling. So in your uh, version of The Tempest back in 97, um, Jim Sharman directed that show and uh, it did a tour, went to Adelaide uh, and um, I think um, Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra as well. Yep. What was your experience like working with John Bell, who had only just started the company a few years earlier, was already well established? Was he like something like a mentor for the rest of the company or did he kind of stick to himself, keep to himself? I actually didn't realise that when you just said that, that, that the company had not been going on that long. Oh. Yeah, for some reason, only... in my mind, John Bell Shakespeare Company had been going forever already. No, it was only five or six years old at that <gasps> point. Yeah, it was early on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's the same actually a, a year after um, Ilbidgery started, um, Bell Shakespeare started. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really surprised me. Oh, isn't that funny? Because <laughs> they were in, you know, because they were already such an institution in that yeah, it short happened, It happened very time. quickly, didn't it? Yeah, yeah they yeah. were already very highly regarded and a, and a household name at mm. that stage. Mm. Or certainly, maybe it's because I was in the arts. But anyway, it certainly seemed like they were, oh, yeah, John Joe, Bell Shakespeare. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, I mean, it was, I just loved working with John, actually, mm. and, mm. and Jim Sharman, actually. Um, yeah. I yeah. loved the interpretation of that work. It was so kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How was it set? What what happened? Oh, I, I, I just think about the, um, I guess it was the costuming. It was set yeah. in this kind of quite heightened, you know, t- tailored suits mm. and top hats and well, not top hats but that kind of, um, I remember all the, the, the fellas that came in the boat with Ferdinand and them. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just even the casting, I casting myself. As, yeah, yeah. As Miranda, and it was never questioned that that he no. might have a brown-skinned daughter. <laughs> but no. it never. I just loved. I just loved that it just never came into it. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah, it was just the best actor for the role, and and uh, yeah, and all, but yeah. but also yeah, important to have that diverse group. And Lani Tupu was on the, on that uh, show as well, I think. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. All sorts of great actors. And Keith Bain was the choreographer. Now, he I worked with at NIDA. Oh, 
in, in one of his last couple of years as the head of movement at NIDA. And uh, he just brought such a love and a joy to, to the room. Do you remember much about Keith and working with him? I don't know that I did too much of that in terms of my role, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. It's interesting thinking back because it was like it was quite a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been 25 years, years ago. ago. Yeah, 25 yeah. years ago. That's right. Actually, yeah. I would know that because my son's 24 and it was a year before that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, actually, the exactly. other thing that I, that you know, I loved working on that show, but it was definitely my first time having a big tour. So mm, it, it was probably mm. at that, during that tour, I was like, nah, stuff this touring business. <laughs> no, I want to <laughs> I I stay on. Oh, okay. just the whole hotels and yeah. yeah yeah it can be a bit of a strain right yeah, yeah. it's full on okay but it, was, it was such a good gig so you didn't do Shakespeare after that after that that was it oh yeah no I was definitely as much as I loved it I was really frustrated with the I actually because after that I went and saw as many plays as I could and re, uh well I'm not, I'm not a terrible reader but read a few plays but looking for where are the good where are the good women's roles, the good Shakespeare roles? Yeah, so it was just like, oh, that's for interesting, God's isn't it? sake. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I got really frustrated mm-hmm, just feeling mm-hmm. like they're always the victims mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. they all die or go mad or whatever it is. I was like, oh, for God's sake. So, yeah, that, that's, that is a really tough thing to grapple with, I think, with Shakespeare's uh, female. I mean, there's some spectacular ones like Juliet and Cleopatra. Um, but obviously the, the current trend is for, you know, it doesn't matter what your gender is to, and um, to, to play some of the big roles. You know, Belle Shakespeare just had a female Hamlet, female Richard III mm. and so on. So I love so, Kate Mulvaney's uh, yeah, um, Henry. Wasn't she, what's his face? Uh, yeah. Richard III, yeah, wasn't she brilliant? Oh, Richard, Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Henry, <Yeah>. sorry. <laughs> One yep. of those guys. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the idea that gender doesn't need to matter anymore, that, you know, that anyone oh. can play can play these wonderful, big, powerful roles and, yeah. and, and yeah. make a meal of them. Them, you know yeah yeah because they truly are extraordinary roles yeah. yeah they are and they're human beings you know they're, they're dealing with they're grappling with human issues and and sometimes it's gendered and sometimes it's not um but you know the the body that's on stage makes the meaning so you know whoever you cast you're going to create a different show a different meaning and uh, and a different version of the play and anyone can play it i think mm-hmm. yeah Rachel, Rachel, it's been so much fun having a chat with you. And before we go, before we say goodbye, I've got the final five quick questions um, to ask you. Five quick questions, five quick answers. Here we go. Number one, Rachel Mazza, are you the lover, the villain or the fool? I'd have to go the fool. (laughs) (laughs) You do like to have a laugh, that's for sure. (laughs) Definitely not the villain. Uh, Definitely not the lover. Uh, Yeah, no, I'd go the fool and I definitely can relate to that. It's always um, there's a a sense of sitting back, cracking a joke, trying the disarming um, tactic. To, to get what I want. <laughs> the, the, well, the fool also speaks truth to power, so I think um, that's yes. a big part of what you do. Yeah, exactly. Um, Rachel, what's your most underrated Shakespeare play? Which one should we see more of? Yeah, that's a hard one because, I yeah, actually because my favourites are, well, actually it was that first one 
that I read over that Christmas period, Hamlet, mm. where I was just like, oh, my Lord, I wouldn't want to play a thing. Uh, any of those, yeah. yeah, one of those yeah. female characters, no thanks, but I'd definitely Tricky. play Hamlet. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, um, let's let's put you in Hamlet. That would be great. That would be fantastic. Who is your favourite artist you'd love to work with who you haven't worked with already? Oh, well, Kate Mulvaney. Yeah. <laughs> She's amazing. Sounds good. I, I wish we could make that happen. That would be amazing. And, <laughs> and, and but we, yeah, if you're listening, Kate, uh, give us a call. What is the dream Shakespeare role that you would love to play? You'd love to play Hamlet. Are there any others? Hmm. Doesn't have to be female role. Oh, no, Kate's already done that. But I, I do <laughs> like that Richard character, that yes. whole devious, manipulative. I really do like playing bad characters actually. Okay, well there you go. There's a bit of villain in you. How about how about Ia- how about Iago? But from, only from ever Othello? as a character. I'd never do it in real no, life. Of course not. Of course not. You've yeah. played Othello. Maybe next time you could play Iago. That'd be fun. Oh yeah. And and uh, Rachel, if you weren't an artist, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh, no, hands down, I'd be propagating um, natives and bush regeneration. Yeah. Yep. You love nature. Yeah, well, and also I, I sometimes find myself really questioning what's this crazy thing we're doing, making pretty stories and and very it's this, this extraordinarily expensive art form when the, <laughs> when the world around us is going crazy and we need more trees. So I'm like, I should be out there planting trees. Interesting. Um. Okay. <laughs> Interesting take. Rachel Mazza, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on Speak the Speech. Awesome. Thanks for having us, James. Now, just before we wrap up today's episode, a bit of podcast cross-promotion. I want to tell you about a show I think you'll enjoy, listeners. It's called Play On Podcasts, epic audio adventures that adapt and reimagine Shakespeare's timeless tales, featuring original music and the voices of award-winning actors. Each episode explores plays from Macbeth to Midsummer Night's Dream in a way that's easy to understand and is created specifically for the podcast form by some of America's most exciting playwrights, directors and composers. Hear Shakespeare like you've never heard it before. Subscribe to Play On Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, as always, for joining me on Speak the Speech, produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or learn more about what we do, visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Be sure to follow us on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review our podcast through your listening platform.